Well, during uh, the season of Advent, we looked at Isaiah 9, verse 6, and saw the Lord Jesus as our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And then on Christmas Eve, we focused on his personal name, Jesus. And then Christmas Day, we pondered Emmanuel, God with us. And so today, we're going to conclude that series our Advent Christmas series, by looking at yet another name or another title of our Lord, namely Christ. The first line, the very first line in the New Testament, if you open the Bible, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as you open the New Testament, the first line is Matthew 1, chapter 1, verse 1, and it reads, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The very introduction of Jesus to us from the New Testament is Him as Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. So what is Christ? Let's try to understand that, and I think there are lots of very significant implications for us today. Christ is actually a title. Christ is the Greek term, and it's equivalent to the Hebrew Messiah, and sometimes in the New Testament it would say They found Christ, which is the Messiah, or they found the Messiah, which is Christ. It's used interchangeably. And it means, literally means, anointed. Somebody that's been anointed with oil. In the Old Testament, there's a practice of being anointed by oil as a sign of consecration. So a person would be anointed with oil to be something, to be set apart for a specific task. For example, priests were anointed. So if you were a priest in the temple, there would be a ceremony. You would be, an oil, oil oil would be put on you, and you would be designated as a person who is allowed to go into the temple and perform sacred duties for God's people. Kings were anointed. When a king would be, uh, would ascend to the throne, he would be anointed and acknowledged by all as God's divine choice to rule over his people. And so there's a long tradition of that kind of anointing. But as you read the Old Testament, you you see that more and more this idea of the anointed one, the Messiah, God's anointed, is becoming more and more and more specifically applied to this promised person. And God's people are waiting for centuries. They're waiting for this anointed one to come, for this new kind of king to come, for this new kind of designated leader to appear and save his people from affliction and oppression. So in the Old Testament, there's a development of this term. So when you get to the New Testament, everybody kind of understands what Messiah means, what Christ means. And what's interesting is that Matthew starts his gospel by applying that term, Christ, Messiah. He's applying that to this person, this person, Jesus of Nazareth. And he's saying, this is the Christ. But not just the title is applied, but the title has become so closely associated with this person that it became part of his name, his Jesus Christ. Sometimes in the Bible you would read about Jesus the Christ, or he is the Christ, saying he is that person we've been waiting for. But often, and most, most commonly, you would read it as Jesus Christ as a personal name that's applied to him. Isabel Wilkerson wrote a, a great book I read a couple of years ago. It's called The Warmth of Other Sons, and it documents the great migration of African Americans 
from the south to northern and western cities. Now, about 6 million people relocated between 1915 and 1970. 6 million people moved from the south. African Americans moved from the south to northern and western cities. And in that book, Wilkerson describes the naming practices of African-American parents in the segregated South. She says, Sometimes parents try to superimpose glory on their offspring with the grandest title they could think of. Or if they were feeling especially militant, the name of a senator or president from the North. It was a way of affixing acceptability, if not greatness. It forced everyone, colored and white, to call their janitor sons Admiral or General or John Quincy Adams, whether anybody, including the recipient, liked it or not. White Southerners who would not call colored people Mr. or Mrs. were made to sputter out Colonel or Queen instead. This is, this is similar to the way that people speak about Jesus. Because in his very name, there's an acknowledgement of his greatness and his dignity. When people talk about Jesus Christ now, by simply calling him Jesus Christ, whether they are Christians or not, whether they realize it or not, by simply using that name, Jesus Christ, they refer to him as the Messiah. They refer to him as the King, the divinely anointed king, the prophesied deliverer of the world. Like it or not, that's his name, and the title became his name, and even if you use his name in vain, you're still using that dignified royal title. So as we consider the significance of that name this morning, I'd like us to focus on the following. Number one, Let's consider that Jesus was anointed by God. This is a divine status that was given to him. He was anointed by God. Secondly, let's consider that Jesus was anointed to rule. He was anointed, designated to rule. And finally, let's consider that Jesus was anointed to save. Anointed by God, anointed to rule, and anointed to save. Now, when Jesus started his public ministry, and, the, and I'm sure it was a dramatic moment. If we, if we were there, if we had been there, we would realize how dramatic that moment was. In Luke 4, Jesus begins his ministry by going to a synagogue and reading a passage of Scripture. In Luke 4, as he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, Jesus make, makes an announcement. He's saying, 
I've been anointed by God to do these things. You've been waiting for someone. I am that someone. I mean, this is, this is a revolutionary declaration. He's saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the anointed by God. God sent me here to do what I am doing. He takes this well-known prophecy from Isaiah, this messianic prophecy that everybody knew, that everybody knew by heart and longed to see fulfilled, and he applies it to himself, and he presents himself as anointed by the Lord. Now, if you fast forward in the biblical history a little bit further, this is after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit falls on the church. Peter, the apostle, preaches this great sermon, and he concludes his sermon in Acts 2.36 by saying this, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter is saying, have, have no doubt, have no illusions that this is the person whom God made to be your Lord and Christ. Messiah, the anointed one of God. Though you crucified him, this is the person. This is the Messiah. And then in Psalm 2 and Revelation 11 and 12, there's lots of passages where we read about his anointed, God's anointed, or his Christ, making a connection between God and his person that he sent to be the ruler of the world. The Messiah is the person that's chosen and set apart by God himself on God's authority. Now, in other words, Jesus was not voted to be, Jesus, to be Christ. He was not elected by the majority to occupy that office. He was appointed by God with God's authority to be the Christ. Now, I know this sounds like an obvious point, okay? But it has considerable ramifications for us. If Jesus is the divinely appointed ruler of the world, if this is who God chose, we must deal with him. We must deal with him, with Jesus. There are not multiple rulers designated by various authorities and rival kings. No. God has the supreme authority over his creation and he appointed Jesus of Nazareth to be our king. No one else has the authority to remove or replace God's anointed. We have to deal with him. Let me give you an analogy. Imagine sitting in an aisle seat on the airplane. Let's just call it Southwest just for kicks, okay? <clears throat> Let's see you made it, you know. And, and you're, you're on the plane, and a voice comes through the speakers. This is your captain speaking. Welcome aboard. We expect a smooth flight and anticipate arriving on time at Montreal. We hope you enjoy your flight. Common thing for those who fly. You hear the captain introduce themselves, assure you everything is okay, and then you are on your way. Now, the person who is speaking is actually the captain of the airplane. He is the person who's flying the plane. He's in charge. Now, like it or not, doesn't matter, like it or not, as long as you are on that plane, he has authority over you. 
and he decides where you're going. And if you're going to Montreal, he's in charge of that route. He will either get you there or not, but he will decide that. Now, you may prefer that someone else were flying the plane. You may question the pilot's authority. You may propose someone else should fly the plane. You may pretend you are the pilot and you are flying the plane. You may stay in your seat and pretend that you are actually directing, <laughs> right? Make propeller noises and have a great time, but you're not flying the plane. He is. Like it or not, that's just the reality of your situation. He is the captain, and he is flying the plane. There are no other options, you see. So when we come to Jesus, when we deal with Jesus, like it or not, he is the divinely designated king of the world. Now, as long as you're in God's world, which is always and forever, as long as you're in his world, you have to deal with his designated king. There are no other options. Now, we can reject his authority. Of course we can. We can pretend someone else is in charge. We can. Maybe even we are in charge. We can pretend that we are running the world. But he's the king. He's the captain. And if you want to live in reality, according to reality of how things re really are, you have to deal with him. And Jesus will land the plane when and where he wants. Now, you can object all you want. You can question, you can rebel, but this is just how it is. Jesus is God's anointed ruler over the world. He's our king. But of course, we ascribe the title of a king to many people, right? Elvis is the king for some of us. Abe Froman is the sausage king of Chicago for some others. Three days ago, Pelé died, and Pelé is widely regarded, almost universally regarded, as the best football player in the world. And he was called and is called the king of the beautiful game, the king of football. But calling somebody king, whether it's Elvis or Pelé, simply recognizes their greatness and maybe communicates our awe or respect or admiration for them. But it doesn't acknowledge their authority. It's interesting that even actual kings, right, like royal people like King Charles, we call them King Charles, but we don't actually think there's any authority that they have over us. Maybe ceremonial, ceremonial maybe in certain places, maybe symbolic. Pele never had any authority over me, as much as I may admire him. Elvis had no authority over me. But Jesus is the actual king. He actually has authority over us because he's been designated by God himself to be our king. The God-man Jesus was anointed to rule as Lord of lords and king of kings. And he said to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, and we'll return to that passage a few minutes later, but it begins with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. I mean, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth, so there's no realm in this creation where I am not the king. He says, all authority has been given to me. 
He's the king. You have to deal with him. Now, how many people, how many of us, maybe even us present here, want Jesus, but we don't want Christ? Are you like that? Do you want a relationship with Jesus without submitting to his rule? You want him as Jesus, but not as Christ? Well, that's impossible. That's impossible. Because he is who he is, and to know him, you must know him as he really is, both Jesus and Christ. You can't know him as Jesus without knowing him as Christ. That's just who he is. He is the king, and to know him and to relate to him and to be with him, you have to embrace him as your king. Otherwise, you're not embracing him for who he is. You're just taking a part of him. Now, I find it really puzzling when some professing Christians emphasize the kingdom in order to soften the exclusive claims and high demands of Christ. I don't know if you've noticed that, but there's some, sometimes, you know, Christians would talk about kingdom values and how in, in God's kingdom, many people are included. And it, it, it's almost like they're saying, you don't really need to know Jesus. You just kind of become part of his kingdom. It's like, as long as we agree on these virtues, on these values, on these goals, then we're sort of all in the same kingdom. And so we don't need to talk about Jesus being the only way or Jesus demanding discipleship. We can just say we're, just, we're in the kingdom. We're going to promote the kingdom. <clears throat> and what's interesting is that with this kind of language and this kind of approach, you end up with a lot of people in that quote-unquote kingdom that actually don't believe in Jesus, don't claim allegiance to him, or even claim allegiance to other things and other deities and other people. Now, how can that be? How can there be a kingdom when people in the kingdom don't accept the rule of the king? Now, you can't have the kingdom without the king because it's the king who defines what the kingdom is. The king defines its laws. The king defines its aspirations, its values, its customs, its traditions, its expectations. Everything flows from the king. And the king determines who belongs in the kingdom and who doesn't. Not us, but the king does that. The king dispenses the blessings of the kingdom and applies its benefits to whomever he wants. So it's amazing to me to hear Christians talk about the kingdom without the king. How, how can you be part of his kingdom? How can you serve, serve whom if you don't know the king? How can you be a member of his church without the head of the church, without knowing who he is and pledging allegiance to him? Why do so many professing believers, professing Christians who bear the name of Christ, they gladly accept the name of Christ, even Christ? But why do so many of us feel that we can hold beliefs and practices that are so contrary to what Jesus actually teaches? I mean, if he's the king, if he is Christ, if Jesus is the Christ, shouldn't we just do what he commands? I mean, shouldn't we just say, Jesus, you tell us, and then we do it. Now, you tell us what's true, and we say, yes, it's true, because you're the king. We, we don't make the rules. 
We don't come up with our own philosophies. We don't come up with our own moral values. We just simply accept in obedience what He gives us. And we do what He commands. But the truth is that even for many Christians, Jesus is not Christ. They may love Him. They may appreciate what He's done for them. They may even respect His opinion. But they do not bow their knee before His supreme authority. Do you? Do you? Do you think of Jesus as the King? That if He says something, it's true, it's true. It's true. If he tells you to do something, you do it because he's the king. Let me give you an example. Would you like to hear what I think about the controversial Respect for Marriage Act? Would you like to hear me say that? Okay. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> who cares what I think? Who cares? I'm sorry, I trapped you a little bit, but, but who cares? I mean, who cares what I think? Who should we care about? Jesus. What does Jesus think about that? What does Jesus think about marriage? What does Jesus say? Does he approve of interracial marriage? Yes, he does. Does he approve of same-sex marriage? No, he doesn't. Now, for, for a subject of the king, for somebody who understands Jesus as the Christ, as the king, this is not a difficult issue. It isn't. And it's not controversial for, for us, for Christians. Politicians, well-meaning or not, self-serving or not, cannot change the reality of God's truth. They can't do that. They're not kings. And so whatever they write, however many votes they get, whoever signs, it doesn't really matter because it doesn't change the reality of it. Does it affect our lives? Sure, yes. Should we be involved in the political process? Yes. But ultimately what matters is what Jesus thinks, what Jesus says, what Jesus commands. Matthew 19, 4, 5, and 6. Jesus says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Jesus says that. Two genders, right? Male and female. Jesus says that. The king says that. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? That's marriage. A man leaving his parents, holding fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh, Jesus says. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Is it clear? I don't, I don't know how else you can read that. I think Jesus is very clear on a number of issues. And he speaks with authority because he's the king. Because he can say that because he knows what's true and he defines what's right. Now, there are many Christians, and especially in our church, that accept Christ's authority on social issues, on moral issues, and that is great. It's really important but that's not the full scope of his authority. Not only does Christ shape what we believe, he also shapes our attitudes toward those who disagree with us. 
and oppose us when we proclaim and practice what our king commands. This is what Jesus says in Luke 6, 27, 28. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Is this any less clear than Jesus' teaching on marriage? It's just as clear. It's just as clear. And so if he's the king, if we see Jesus as the Christ, if he's the Messiah, and if we bow our knee and we pledge allegiance to him, then we have to take the whole thing, right? All the moral issues, whether it's politically expedient or not, whether our candidate supports it or not, we are not aligning with our candidates. We're aligning with the king. We take all of it and we say, whatever Jesus says, whatever he commands, that's it. For a Christian, that's it. And then you work it out. Yes, work it out politically, of course. Work it out socially, of course. And work it out with the right attitude, with the attitude that Jesus commands you to have. Because he doesn't just command you to believe the right things. He also commands you to do it in the right way. And if he's the king, that all of it is for us. And we can't separate it. Because if he's the king, everything he says is important. And everything he says has authority over us. We don't get to pick and choose. If we are to follow Jesus as Christ, if we are to submit to him as our king, we must obey him in everything. Now, isn't that what the church is supposed to do? Yes, of course. Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20. This is a verse that's familiar to us, that's important to our church. This is a verse that defines who we are as a church and what we do, and really any church should be defined and shaped by this verse, these verses. This is Jesus' commission for his church. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now this command is, it's rooted in his kingship. It's rooted in his Christness. It says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What are we supposed to do? Make disciples. Not half disciples. Not just people who agree with us. Not just people who, are well, who, who can go along with us to a certain point. No, no, no. Disciples. Commanding them, teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. And Jesus is with us in that. Even now, still teaching us. Now, try to emphasize Jesus' authority and our submission to him as God's anointed and our king, because I think this is something that many people and many people in the church struggle to understand and accept. I think this is actually a really big issue. But we can't simply preach obedience without explaining why Jesus is the kind of king that it makes sense to obey. Now, there's another aspect of his anointing, of his messiahship, of his Christness, that provides the strongest motivation to see him as king and be loyal to him in everything. Now, go with me to Mark 14, beginning in verse 3. Mark 14, 
beginning in verse 3. This is an incredible passage. While he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. We find Jesus having dinner, and a woman comes in and anoints him, pours this expensive perfume all over him. She worships him. Now she brings something that is most valuable to her and sacrifices it for him. Now, what she doesn't realize, probably, is that she's prophesying. She is prophesying what will happen to Jesus, and Jesus knows that. Her anointing is in line with God's anointing of Jesus as the Savior of the world. This is an expression, this is a physical expression done by a human being of what God has planned for Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what's happening, and he commends the woman for doing a beautiful thing. She says, she's done a beautiful thing to me, and she anointed my body for burial, for death. She came to worship, and in worship we see God as he is. We worship him as he is, acknowledging and recognizing who he is and what he does. And she did that. And she acknowledged, maybe inadvertently, maybe not realizing it, but she acknowledged that Jesus is the kind of king that came to die for his people. And so she anoints him with perfume to prepare his body for burial. And Jesus says that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, even here in Hazelwood on this first day of 2023, we will remember her. And we will mention that and we will say that there's something about that act that signified something very important about Jesus that helped us understand who he is and the kind of king he is. Now, why is this so important? Because Jesus is the king that was anointed to save his people by sacrificing himself for them. This woman's anointing explains the nature of his rule. See, it helps us understand the kind of king he is. Because his rule is a loving rule. He saves and delivers those that he has authority over. And God's people for centuries waited and waited for generations, passing on these prophecies and these predictions and these longings. They've waited for this kind of king. 
They waited for the son of David, this king from the royal line, to come and save them from oppression and affliction. But of course, when he came, when Jesus came, he exceeded their expectations because he came to save them and us from our sins. Everything that's broken, everything that's wrong with us, not just the political stuff, right? Not just the social stuff, not just the oppression, not just the violence, but everything came to save us from our sins. And how did he do that? He did that by giving his life for his people. Came to sacrifice himself for his people. That's the kind of king he is. Now, obedience is especially difficult when we don't trust the person we are supposed to obey. You may have a problem accepting the pilot's authority if you heard rumors about his drinking, for example, right? All of a sudden, it's not as reassuring to hear his voice over the speakers. For many people, the image of the king is, is, is that of authoritarian and oppressive kind of rule. Many of us think of kings as people who just do whatever they want for themselves and just use people in their kingdom. If I know that the king only has his own interests, his own glory, his own power, his own wealth at heart, and he's just using me for himself, how can I be excited to obey him? But it's very different with Jesus. He's a king that can be trusted. He's a king that does have our best interest in mind. If Jesus was anointed to die for us, if part of his kingship, part of his royal authority, part of his messiahship is actually dying for his subjects, if his, the very nature of his rule, if in the very nature of his rule there is love and care for us, why should we not obey him? You know, for many Christians, the question is, why do I have to do what Jesus tells me to do? But that's the wrong question. That, that question, asking that question already betrays a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what kind of rule he has. The real question should be, how can I not obey him? Why wouldn't I obey him? Why shouldn't I do what he tells me to do? Now, you may think that his views on marriage or sexuality or money or justice are unfair or too restrictive or even oppressive. You may, think, you may genuinely think that because we're all products of our culture and many of us struggle with that. But the cross, the cross doesn't let you do that. As soon as you bring the cross into the conversation, all of a sudden your arguments against his commands sort of fall apart. The cross proves to us that Jesus loves us and cares for us. Because the cross proves to us that he doesn't sacrifice us for himself, but he sacrifices himself for us. So whatever he tells us to do, Whatever restrictions he puts on us, whatever commands, negative or positive, he gives us, those are good commands. Those are good things from a good king to build a good kingdom. And so we bow our knee and we say, yes, Lord Jesus, why would I not obey 
the kind of king that came to sacrifice himself for me. Because that's the kind of king he is. And if you get it, if you put these pieces together, right? All of a sudden, our cultural situation becomes crystal clear. All of a sudden, political decisions become easier. All of a sudden, relationships are clear. I'm not saying things become easy all around. No, no. But clarity comes. Because if he's the king, we just listen to him, we understand what he says, and we do what he commands us to do. And we do it gladly because we know that he is the kind of king that died for his people. He is not oppressive. He is not just serving himself. He came to serve us and gave his life for us. And all of that is summed up in Philippians 2, and I'll read it, and then we'll come to the table. In Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, he's, he's God, that's who he is, he's God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, you see, therefore, you have to get to the cross. You have to see Jesus obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. You have to get there, and then there's a therefore. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. My knees need to bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue, my tongue, should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of the cross, because of the kind of king he is, God exalts him and we bow before him and confess that he, Jesus Christ, is our Lord to the glory of God the Father.